Would you turn with me in your copy of the scriptures? Let's behold the rock this morning, the rock of Jesus, Exodus chapter 17. This is a continuation of our series in Exodus called The Mission of God, Man's Exit and God's Entrance. And this morning, as we look to Christ, as we have been in previous sermons, we find ourselves in the chapter of 17 in the book of Exodus, just one chapter away from where we had been last Lord's Day. In Exodus 17, I ask that you would read along with me in the first uh, several verses. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Thus says the Word of God. Let's pray together. Break open the Word this morning, Lord. Let water just gush out into our hearts this morning. Let our, let our minds, let our hearts be more than fascinated, more than filled, overflowing. Meet with us, Lord. We come to you with thirsty and parched souls. Make our appetites big. Jesus, show us you. Show us you once again, like Moses here in this very place, met with God at the burning bush. So too, Jesus, we come to you and we say, let us behold you. And as it were, that with feet without sandals on, standing on holy ground, may this time be sacred. May the word be pure. May it be everything that we long for. May it meet every need of every hurting heart this morning, whether broken by sin or sadness and sorrow. Fill us, Lord, with the refreshment of the water of life. We read in your word in Revelation 22, you say, come, drink of the well. Father, we come to you. We're holding to that promise. We're coming to you, Lord. Would you give us a drink this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the scripture here says that the people quarreled with Moses. The people quarreled with Moses. What do you think that means? That the people quarreled 
with Moses, that they argued with Moses. Could it mean that they thought that Moses had water that he wasn't giving them and they were arguing with him? Why aren't you giving us water? Well, we learn more about what the quarrel was like when we read Moses' response. Moses says to them, Why are you testing the Lord? Why are you testing the Lord? The basic argument of the quarrel was the basic argument of the quarrel was similar to that of the previous experiences. Not really getting it to go here. The people had still not really believed. If you look in your Bibles over to chapter 16, last Lord's Day, we were just in chapter 16 where the people were, they were hungry, they were starving. Had you brought us out of Egypt? And they longed for the flesh pots, which were basically empty back by the Nile in Egypt. Had you brought us out here to die? Oh, that we were back in Egypt and ate like kings when we were slaves in Egypt. It was just, it was just yesterday they were there. Now God is supplying for them. By the way, morning and evening, continuing for 40 years as we learned at the end of, um, at the end of Exodus chapter 16. For 40 years, every day, like clockwork, God was bringing bread to them. Twice a day, bread and meat. And Moses intends, I believe as the writer of this, intends for you to flip the page and to see another reflection of the faithlessness of God's people. He just puts it right here. They just doubted about the bread. Now they're going to doubt about the water. And the basic argument was this, and it's the age-old problem of the human heart. It began with Adam and Eve. C.S. Lewis, in his, in his collection of essays called God in the Dock, dock meaning a, meaning a place of judgment, okay? A place of judgment where you examine someone, where, where you're the judge and you, and you place them before your judgment bar and you interrogate them and you, you condemn them. In a, in a series of essays called God in the Dock, C.S. Lewis writes this. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the rules are quite re- reversed. He is the judge. We are the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and that God is on the dock. Let me ask you and let me say to you that the age-old problem of the human heart is this, that Adam and Eve, like you and I, we put God in the dock. We stand as judges before the God. And none of us in this room can say that we have never judged God. None of us in this room can say we've never done that. We have all sat in the seat of the judge of God. And even worse, we have dared to lay accusations against God. We have dared to accuse God of His unfaithfulness. We have dared to accuse God of of being loveless. We have dared to, as it were, look God in the eyes and accuse God of being indifferent towards us or or careless about us. And in so doing, we have shown just how foolish and callous our hearts are. We have all put God in the dock. The ten plagues 
just a month before this passage. The Red Sea parting soon after that. The the drowning of Egypt's armies. The the visible pillar of cloud by day that was leading the Israelites. And by night, lest they think that God had left them when the moon began to shine, a, a pillar of fire in their midst at night. Bread and quail twice a day. And now they are thirsty. Salvation through Christ. Healing mercies for us. Maybe not the pillar that we see. Maybe not the quail. Maybe not the Red Sea. Maybe not the plagues. But for us, salvation through Christ. Healing mercies as God has healed our bodies. The Holy Spirit testimony in our lives. Him speaking and dwelling with us. Answering our prayers. Cleansing and comforting our hearts through the Word of God, and 10,000 other mercies for us, just like Israel experienced 10,000 mercies at God's right hand, the plagues, the deliverance, the exodus, the Red Sea, the quail, the bread. And still, you and I, like Israel, we have the audacity to accuse God to show us His goodness when, when we have a need that goes unmet. God, I know You're the God of the Red Sea. I know You're the God who cared for me yesterday. We go on to not ask God questions, but we enter into the realm of putting God in the dock and we say, God, I'm not asking You if You love me. I'm telling You You don't. Because if You loved me... And then we fill in the blank. We have the audacity to accuse God in failing to show us His goodness when we have needs that are left unmet. And still we have the audacity to accuse God of failing to, to, to supply for us. How then should these people have received water? Think on that. The Bible has some times in which it's the thinking is on a high level. You need to think through it and compare Scripture. And some things seem to be mysterious. But how were these people supposed to have water? Well, let me ask you something. How are you supposed to have water? It's the same. I mean, first of all, we can think of this, that certainly it wouldn't be by quarreling, if you could advance the next slide, it wouldn't be firstly by quarreling with Moses about the character of God. It wouldn't be about arguing. It wouldn't be about approaching any leader or God himself and arguing. But secondly, there ought to have been a reckoning or making an account of the wealth of supply of the food that was delivered them twice a day. Again, the people doubted. Sure, we have food, but did you bring us out here to die? How often are we so forgetful of the 10,000 mercies that have been given to us and yet there's one more need that seems unmet and we, we wonder, has God reached His limit of goodness? But even worse, we wonder, is God even good at all? And thirdly, what they just needed to do is say, God, would you give us water? Could it be that there are unmet needs in our life? Not because God isn't willing, 
but because we are not asking. We're more willing to argue a case. We're more willing to grumble and complain. We're more willing to entertain the thoughts of unbelief because it seems to give us some sort of egotistical power to think that maybe we are better than God. Maybe we're more good than God. And so he's not reaching to a bar that we have set, an artificial bar. And so Jesus says, you have not because you what? You ask not. And why do you not ask? You see, in Acts chapter 17, Moses is pointing out something here that's true of all of our lives. And that is that we have not because we ask not. We would rather argue. We would rather contend. We'd rather it be a controversy. We find some sort of sick sick joy and feeling control in, in the argument that, that perhaps it could be in the stroking of our ego and our self-righteousness that perhaps maybe finally, finally, we are just one up from God now in the measure of what it is to be good. God has just failed us and we can gloat. Essentially, number four, what they needed to do in response was to really give complete trust that God was not holding back anything from them that they needed. God was not holding back anything that they needed. Notice how God responds to this quarrel. In verse number 6, God instructs Moses in this way. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you will strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. This is what God says will be done. I will be involved in meeting of the need. All you need to do is strike the rock, water will come out of it, and the people will drink. When we began this study in Exodus to learn Christ in in all of the scriptures, and especially in the Old Testament, before we continue to look at one more picture of Christ in the book of Exodus, let's pause to ask this question. Why is it that we should find Jesus in the Old Testament? Why is it so important that we look for Jesus in the Old Testament? According to Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 48, as Jesus is walking with the discouraged disciples following his resurrection, remember the stranger on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus began to expound all things about himself and Moses and all the prophets. And he said, did you not see me in the Old Testament? And could it be that often our, our, our hearts are not engaged or our minds are disengaged in, in recognizing Jesus when we see him in the Old Testament? Why should we look for Jesus in Exodus chapter 17? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us an answer to this. And he gives it to us very specifically when he refers to this instance, this exact passage in his book to the Corinthians. And so turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Apostle Paul, looking back into Exodus 17 and some previous chapters, 
give some encouragement to the church that is for all of us to enjoy here this morning and to receive. And He does not want us to so easily miss Jesus in all of the Scriptures. He doesn't want us to miss Jesus in Exodus 17. And listen, this morning the Holy Spirit doesn't want you and I to miss Jesus in Exodus chapter 17. And verse number 1, 1 Corinthians 10, For I do not want you to be unaware. I want you to know everything there is to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized in the Moses. That is, they were identified with Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, here's why Acts 17 is in your Bibles. These things took place as examples for you and I. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, that is, to worship false gods. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And He will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability, but will, with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, in verse number 6, he says, these things took place as an example for us. Listen, they have become warnings and instructions for you and I. Exodus 17 for you and I. Paul wants to see Jesus in the wilderness. He doesn't want us to miss Jesus in the wilderness like Israel missed Jesus in the wilderness. He doesn't want us to to repeat the same problems of Israel. He knows the waywardness of our heart. He's seen it in, in Corinth, and the Holy Spirit knows our hearts this morning, and it's really important. If you read Exodus and you don't see Christ, you've missed the whole point of the book. That's what Paul's saying. If you read the book of Exodus and you don't see Jesus, you've missed the whole point. You've missed what God is trying to teach you about Christ and about himself and even something about you. These happened as examples for us, Paul says. So what can we learn about Christ and what can we learn about ourselves in this? Well, to start with, let's understand what Paul is saying here. Paul is lumping the whole wilderness experience into one example from immoral relationships with the Moabites to the idolatry of the golden calf at the foot, the base of Mount Sinai, to Korah's rebellion, 
Paul means to show us just where unbelief, lack of trust in God takes people like you and I. Where does our faithlessness take us? Where does our negligence, where does our unbelief take us? You might think that living out your Christian life every day without passion for God, with, without an acknowledgement of God, is, is non-consequential. You might feel like maybe it's not that big a deal to, to, just, to just exist in mediocre land. To have no heartbeat for God, but to know that you have been redeemed, to know that you have placed your faith in God, but to be indifferent towards God. Where does unbelief take us? And that's our first question. Where does unbelief take us? Well, there's several answers to this that the Apostle Paul, that the Apostle Paul breaks out in 1 Corinthians 10. He shows us what's happening in the hearts of the people in Exodus 17. First of all, he says that we might not desire evil as they did. Unbelief takes us into desiring evil as they did. And secondly, unbelief takes us into the place where we would put Christ to the test. Where we would put God in the dock. Where we argue against God. Where we lay accusations against God. And then thirdly, Unbelief takes us into a thankless place where we grumble, where we grumble and complain. And where does Paul say that these type of people go? He says they didn't make it. He says they didn't make it. They were judged by God and they didn't inherit the promised land. Yes, after 40 years of enduring the wilderness, they didn't make it. They didn't make it. These ways of living are, are ways of unbelief and God does deal with this if this is how we will live. When we live like this, we show that we are truly not His followers. But if when we go through times of hardship and we humble ourselves, then we will see the faithfulness of God. He will give us water from the rock in our time of testing and we will be able to endure it. Verse number 12. So where does unbelief take us? It takes us where we would never want to go if that's where we knew it would take us. It takes us far away from God. But what do we look like when we get there? Number two, what, what, do, we, what do we look like when we get there? So, so, okay, so we've gone down this path, then what is our lives like? The problem is that when the trial comes into our lives, when the testing comes into our lives, we... We look within and we look without. We long for Egypt and we grumble against God and we put God on trial. And we look to our idols. So what do we do when we get there? When we get to the place where God is on trial? Well, then the only other place we can look to for supply, for blessing, if God's on trial, if he's the doubtful one, then we've got to go somewhere else for water. And so we go to our self-made idols, our self-made gods. And so we desire evil. We desire evil when we become discontent with God. We desire evil when we become, we become discontent with God. We, we put Christ to the test when we don't rely upon His grace. You say, I can't get out of this mode right now in, in my life where, 
where I'm just pressing against God. I'm just arguing with Him. I'm unsettled. I, I'm, I'm discontent with God. I, I, I just have so much against Him. I know it's not right. I don't know what to do. Well, this is what undoes this. What you need to understand is that you're not relying upon His grace. You're putting Christ to the test when you, you're not relying upon what He's already supplied. Because you have come to think that His supply isn't enough. That His grace isn't enough. It's not amazing. This is why you complain, Paul says. This is why you're unsettled. This is why you're greedy, covetous, and full of anxiety. Listen, this is why you worry. Because you don't think grace is enough. You don't think God's grace is enough. This is why your mind is double-minded, like you're a wave in the sea and you're driven and tossed. You're an unstable person because you have forgotten to look upon grace. You have forgotten to reckon the quail and the bread that supplies you day after day. Grace isn't enough. It's not good enough. It's not enough. It's not personal enough. You've begun to despise grace. If your life is continually like this in the people of Israel, Paul is saying there's a strong possibility that you never truly have found God to be your Savior. He gives a warning. He says, if your life is characterized by finding that God is not enough, by constantly judging God and not receiving His grace, He says, you might not make it. Because this isn't the way someone who has been delivered from Egypt crossed through the Red Sea, provided for daily. This isn't how someone who has experienced so great a salvation lives. So he says, where is your faith? So let's look at this even more closely according to our own lives. He said, we have been, you and I have been delivered from a greater exodus through Jesus Christ and the faith that we have put in Him. And, and he, has accounted, he has been the accounting of righteousness unto our salvation. You and I have been freed from the bondage, the enslavement of sin, and we are now following Christ as free men. And so then we have been drawn close to Him because He has given us a covenant of love. We, we have been drawn close to Him as like at Sinai. He has set His love upon us. And in, in Jesus' love for us, He has provided all sorts of proofs. He has provided all sorts of signs of His steadfast commitment that He would never let us fall. 
Then as we are en route, you and I today living our lives May 7, 2023 as we are en route to the promised land, the place where we will rest from our labors and enjoy the presence of God, we are living out our lives today, so to speak, in the wilderness. And what's around us in the wilderness world? What's around you before you get to the promised land? What's around you in your life today? The same as was around Israel. Oh, it might not look like a desert. We have green grass. We have rivers and and lakes and streams and, and seas around us. But let's be more careful about that question. The question is a little misleading. It isn't so much of what's around us, but what is still within us. The Apostle Paul is saying, if you live like you're still in Egypt, then you will be plagued. Like those who are in Egypt in your unbelief and faithlessness. If this is how you live, then this is what it will look like. So what do we learn about ourselves in this according to Paul's instruction? Well, first of all, we learn that we desire evil. You say, how do I get to the place? How did I get to the place where I have come to put God in the dock? How did I get to that? I didn't ever intend that way. I remember one time there being joy in my heart. I remember one time there being a walk with God that was sweet and close and precious. Well, we become desirous of evil when we become discontent with God. We are idolaters. We replace God. We make idols, self-made gods, self-made perceptions of God. And we put Christ to the test when we do not rely upon His grace. We are graceless. We have thought grace wasn't good enough, so therefore we just really don't want it anymore. We're going to come up with our own grace. We're going to come up with our own way to live. We're going to come up with our own benefits, our own blessings. We don't need God's grace. So we are graceless. How do we get there? How do we get to this point where God is in the dock? We grumble when grace isn't enough. We we really become thankless. Thankless. This is what we learn about ourselves. How did we get to a place where we quarrel? And say, did you bring me out so that I could die? How do we get to the place where where God is on trial? We get there when grace isn't enough. And when we have come up with our own theology, when we have come up with our own vision, our own version of God, that fits better into who we think God is. And that's called idolatry. So what do we learn about ourselves and what do we learn about Christ? What do we learn about Christ in this according to Paul's instruction? Here's what Paul wants us to know. This is what they missed. And he says, listen, you you can't live for God and miss this. You have got to understand Exodus 17, he says. You've got to see what God was trying to tell the people. Don't let the same sin be repeated in your life. I don't want you to be unaware. So he says this in verse number 12, that God is faithful. All of that, 
your discontentedness with God, grace isn't enough testing Christ. The response, the response to all of that, the response to God in the dock is just one word. Faithful. That's all God says in His response. Doesn't even have to respond. Does God owe you an answer? But He is merciful and He's gracious. And so He opens His mouth and He says, Faithful. You're discontent with Him. Grace isn't enough. You're judging Him. And you have other gods. He doesn't owe you a response. But with one word, He cuts into your heart because He knows what you have come to believe is that He has given up and He is not trustworthy. With one word, He cuts through the whole accusation and argument. He, he disassembles, He deconstructs your legal case against Him with one word, faithful. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tested beyond that which He will provide grace for. Did you think that I brought you out into the wilderness so that you would die of thirst? I will not allow you to be tested beyond that which I will provide for. I had water in the rock for you. You didn't even ask for it. He will not test you in a way that He cannot help you. Each of us have our own unique testings and burdens in our lives. They are unique. When I consider my life, I think about the messes and the un undone things and things that I've been culpable of and whatever whatever I've made in my life and I, I thought nobody has a life like mine and nobody does. Nobody has a life like yours. All of the complexities. But God has peculiar and special grace through Jesus Christ. He knows. He knows you. As a matter of fact, He has put you in the middle of your mess. And he has said, I'm sitting here with you in the middle of your mess and I am saying one word to you. I am faithful. And don't you love it? In verse number 6 in Exodus 17, God tells Moses, I want you to take the elders and I want you to go before the people and I want you to take the staff that inflicted the plagues upon Egypt and part of the Red Sea and, and before you stand on on that rock, I want you to know something. And this is what I love about, about verse number 6. I think verse number 6 is, is one of, one of the, the greatest verses in all of Exodus, and there's lots of them. What does he say in verse number 6? And I will stand there with you. I will stand on the rock before you in all of Israel. You see... God God will not test you in a way that He cannot help you and God will not test you in a, in a place where He will not be. 
You understand that? God will not take you to a place where He is not. And I just love it. I just love this picture in verse number 6 because he, He tells Moses, hey, go strike the rock. But what He really is doing is God is making a massive appearance, probably through the cloud. And the cloud, this, this pillar of cloud, is standing next to Moses on this rock. And all of Israel is assembled around this rock. And their, their lips are chapped. And their tongues are parched. And they're thirsty. And they're grumbling. And they lift their eyes. And they all of a sudden see Moses along with the elders. And they see them all of a sudden assembled before them. And they see the cloud move towards them. And they see them on this great rock. And they see Moses lift his rod and then strike the rock there in the presence of God. God is saying, water comes from me. Nowhere else. It's not going to come from the wilderness. It's not going to come from your idols. Listen, water and grace never come from your idols. Your idols are graceless. Your theology is graceless. If it's idolatrous. God was signifying. It's not Moses. It's not his rod. It's me. God was testing them to find out where their trust was. Where was their trust? Was it in them? Was it in their idols? Because listen, the reason why God tests you You say, oh, if you would just leave me alone, how many of you would like God to leave you alone? In times of testing. You would rather not have the testings. God, just give me the water. Why did I have to get thirsty in the first place? Well, here's one reason why God doesn't leave you alone. It's because He doesn't want you to serve your idols. And do you know why He doesn't want you to serve your idols? Because He knows your idols will never serve you like He can. Your idols will never serve you. They'll demand more from you. But they'll never serve you. And thirdly, because he knows idols don't have water, neither do rocks. He knows your idols are graceless. And he puts you to the test so you realize, I have just been living, living life according to my own way. I know, ro- I know water doesn't come from anywhere in the wilderness. But I'm not really willing to draw close to God for it. So God exposes us because He wants us to know that Jesus has all the water you need. Jesus has all the water you need. That's why He tests you to show you you and I Didn't think He did. We didn't think God was enough. So He brings us to the end. That's how hard it has to be sometimes. The test has to be hard because our unbelief is deep and it's got roots all over the place in our hearts and it's massive and it's complicated. It's just just rotten and it's rotting. So God who is faithful takes us to a place where only He can provide what is needed to show us that He is all the water we need. So behold, 
God says, Behold, in the middle of your thirst, yes, your, your legitimate need, your legitimate brokenness, your sorrow, your anxiety, your, your, the, the, the broken relationships, in the middle of a legitimate need, thirst in the wilderness is legitimate. They were parched. They weren't faking it. They needed water. It was a desperate situation. In the middle of your thirst, there stands God. God stands in the middle of your need. Do you, do you realize that? God will never leave you, nor will He ever abandon you and leave you alone in the middle of your test. There stands God. And Moses shows us that. Moses shows us that in verse number 6. God was going to stand before Moses and all the people on that rock. Listen, Jesus Christ, He's the rock. That's what Paul says. He's the rock who loved His people and He loves you and I. Jesus Christ, He's the rock, Paul says, who followed the people giving to their every need and their abundance. And listen, Jesus Christ does the same for you and I. Do you believe that? Jesus Christ, He's the rock who stands before us so that we might not miss that it is He who does the supplying. He doesn't want us to miss out the fact that it's He who is doing the supplying. And if it weren't for Him, we would be thirsty. If He doesn't supply, if Jesus doesn't pour this water out, we don't get it, we die. In closing, John Newton, the former slave trader and wonderful theologian of the church, wrote in his diary on Saturday, June 15th in 1776. He said this, Weak as infancy, yet willful as the ass's cult, such is my character. I have now another week to look back upon with thankless thankfulness and humiliation. What powerful causes for both, and yet, yet how faint a sense of either. Ah, my Lord, what shall I, what can I say? My heart is still vile, perverse, and disingenuous. I still complain of thy absence and still build walls to hide thee from my soul. O oh, for faith, this is what I want. This alone obtains the victory. A long walk with Miss Barham's in the forenoon and alone in the evening, and yet I hope not quite alone. Didst thou not draw forth my desires towards thyself for pardon and strength? O oh, here for thy mercy's sake, help me to resolve in thee. Thy grace is sufficient for me but not the notion of it in my head. It must be the efficacy in my heart. Forgive the past. Heal my wounds and anoint me with fresh oil. Let my soul live and it shall praise thee. And John Newton wrote a song about Exodus 17. And it was called, That Rock Was Christ. When Israel's tribes were parched with thirst, forth from the rock the waters burst. And all their future journey through yielded them drink and gospel too. In Moses' rod a type they saw of this severe and fiery law. The smitten rock prefigured him from whose pierced side all blessings stream. But ah, the types were all too faint, his sorrows or his worth to paint, Slight was the stroke of Moses' rod, but he endured the wrath of God. 
Their outward rock could feel no pain, but ours was wounded, torn, and slain. The rock gave but a watery flood, but Jesus poured forth streams of blood. The earth is like their wilderness, a land of drought and some distress, without one stream from pole to pole to satisfy a thirsty soul, but let the Savior's praise resound. In Him refreshing streams are found, which pardon, strength, and comfort give, and thirsty sinners drink and love. That rock was Christ. Let's pray.